Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for these stories. Thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for these scriptures. And may we dig in deeply. And may you, through the reading and study of your word, illuminate our hearts and our souls. Teach us once again some truths, some beauty, some practical living for this beautiful, amazing creation, this world that we live in. May we live out everything to its fullest, all of the principles and precepts that you have for us. In your name, amen. Genesis chapter 31. Before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had to deal with drama in your life? Oh, there's a slight little chuckle. And then the second follow-up question. Have you ever had to deal with a very complicated person in your life? And hopefully, maybe you're sitting next to that complicated person. A complicated person is here. Some nervous laughter, some real laughter, and then some silence, of course, indicates that I would imagine that all of us at one time or another, and maybe even currently, are dealing with or have lived or will live with specific drama that comes through complicated people. Now, I work at a junior high and high school, which means drama is like the number one value of the ministry that we work in. So, you know, if anything goes bad, it's like, oh, it's the end of the world. So, have you ever had to deal with drama or ever had to deal with a complicated person in your life? I'll bet you the answer is yes. And as we continue the story with Jacob, we're going to get to a segment of the story in chapter 31 that I think illuminates more and more of the drama and more and more of the complications of the story. Up until this point, we've had some very wonderful lessons, things that we can take away, things that we can see. But we are starting to see that all of those lessons have a flip side. All of these stories now have complications or nuances or, or layers of these stories that can be illuminated. So today I'd like to share with you from Genesis 31 that I think there are two sides of every single story. And this story that we're going to read, this part of this segment of Jacob's journey, is fraught with drama. And it kind of comes to a head. Genesis chapter 31. Read with me, if you would, starting in verse 1. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks will give birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away from your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flocks flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied, 
Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels and drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Verse 19. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, taking his relatives with him. He pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him. And Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? Are you getting the drama, this tension? I I have a feeling some of this drama may be lost. So I've decided to help us a little bit. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren, my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish foolish thing. I have power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's household. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent, but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, do not be angry, my lord that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am having my period. So he searched, but he could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime? He asked Laban. How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now that you have searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. Okay, and we'll keep going. I have been with you for 20 years. Your sheep and your goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself, and you demanded payment from me, and for whatever was stolen by, my, by day or night. This is my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime, in the cold at night, and... And sleep fled from my eyes. 
It was like this for 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God had not seen, has seen my hardship and the toil in my hands, and last night he rebuked you. All right, we'll stop there for just a moment. I'll get to the rest of the passage, but I wanted to play the music because there's some really deep, dramatic things that are going on there. And I don't think sometimes you always get that just by reading. So you need a little musical assistance every now and then. What's going on here is really dramatic. There's all sorts of twists and changes and ironic turns of this story. And we start to see inside of Jacob. We start to see inside of Rachel and Leah. And we start to see more of this character named Laban. In other words, there's drama happening in the story with very complex complicated people. So let's illuminate a couple of these things. I'll take them one by one. Let's go through carefully and let's see if we can show a little bit about the drama of what's happening here. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Laban's sons, the ones that are supposed to inherit all of the wealth. Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained this wealth from what belonged to our father. Here is the beginning of the drama. The sons who are supposed to receive the inheritance from Laban, somehow with this Jacob guy now in the story, by the way, marrying his, their sisters, is somehow threatening them. And instead of just simply saying, Jacob has fled with a few flocks, what do they say? Jacob has fled with everything. This character, this guy, has taken everything from us. And the drama begins It's not just he's taken a few things. He's taken all things from us that belong. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it was. Something has shifted. Something has turned. Laban's heart, his attitude, his perception of Jacob has all of a sudden taken a turn. And then this dramatic piece here that I love so much. Rachel and Leah, who are the daughters of Laban, And in that particular culture where family is the most precious thing, commodity that you have, listen to what they say. Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? This Laban guy we've only met in in the previous part of the story with this trickster against Jacob. But have we thought about what that trick has done to these daughters, these bystanders, these minor characters in this story. And here they emerge upon the scene. They don't have much dialogue before, but here they emerge with dialogue. Our father, the one who is supposed to treat us like family, has now treated us like a foreigner. He sold us. He used up all that was paid for us. Surely the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. But Laban has just squandered it. Here we start to see a little bit of the feeling of Rachel and Leah being victimized by Laban. Previous in the story, it was just Laban and Jacob. And Jacob's like, what did you do to me by having me work seven years and all of a sudden Leah instead of Rachel? But here we start to see, wait a second, what did he also do to Rachel and Leah? Can you imagine Rachel being set apart, knowing that a betrothal is there? Knowing, believing that her husband is actually working for her because he loved her. And then all of a sudden, at the last moment, the father tricks. Not just Jacob, but Rachel. 
as well. Do you see? We're starting to get a little bit of a fuller sense of the story. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. And when Rachel does this, which may look something like this, they're not very big, these are images or idols, especially in that day when gods and goddesses and images and idols are supposed to be for the protection of the home. Rachel says, forget protecting the home. This is what you've done to me. So while we're getting out of here, by the way, I'm taking these gods with me. You can start to almost sense and feel the pain and the suffering of Rachel in this story. And hopefully we don't just empathize with Jacob, but we start to empathize with Rachel. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? Does anybody remember the last time that phrase has come up? It's the exact same phrase that Jacob It's the exact same phrase that Jacob says to Laban when he makes the switcheroo. And now Laban switches it back and says, "What have you done? You've deceived me and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war." That phraseology is the same word that you would use to drive out cattle. And so even in the description of his daughters, Laban is talking about his daughters not as family, but as property. So what's going on here? We're starting to see a whole other side of this story. And then he says, but why did you steal my gods? Not idols. Different word. Why did you steal my gods? This almost personal affront and attack upon Laban. Verse 32 And this drama is really, oh my goodness, listen to how (laughs) Laban responds. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person in, in the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Jacob's like, we're clean, we're easy. And you start to feel this, is Rachel going to get caught? What's going to happen here? What's fascinating between This dialogue here. Go ahead, Laban. Search my camp. Search the place. Search the tents. We've got nothing here. What's fascinating between this dialogue and this dialogue is that there is an absence of Laban's response. And what does he do? He immediately goes right on in. Now, what's the consequence of if if he finds a god or an idol in the tent? What's the consequence? Death. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, Leah's tent, The tent of the two female servants found nothing. And after that, he came out of Leah's tent. He entered Rachel's tent. The text is written in such a way as to illuminate Laban doesn't even care. If I find this idol, even in Rachel's tent or in Leah's tent, death be to them. The absence of that dialogue illuminates, once again, this character, this very complicated, very difficult person. And it just shifts right into that drama. And then I love this. Because this is like a little jab to Laban. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am having my period. So he searched but could not find the household God. In the ancient world, this cycle for the women was not just biological, but it actually had bigger spiritual implications. It had implications of impurity, had implications of separateness, And so for Rachel to actually be sitting on the gods is almost Rachel's kind of jab to her father and saying, oh yeah, 
you're going to treat me like this? Here are your gods. And in the text, it's like, I'm just going to sit on them even during my period. There's a second layer here which could possibly have a twist and turn, which is when you are having your period, at least in this particular time and context, it's an indication of fertility. It's an indication that you are in that mode of being able to bear children. And that turn there is almost to say to Laban, listen, I waited seven years for Jacob. And all that time, I was ready. And then you did that to me. You twisted it and you gave, her, gave him my sister. And I had to wait yet another seven years. Right during the time when I was ready to bear children. What did you do to me? Do you feel this tension that's growing? This angst and the hurt and the pain and the anguish that is here. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime, he asked. How have I wronged you that you hunt me down, now that you search through all my goods? What have you found that belongs to your household? And then he says, put it here in front of your relatives and mine. Put it here in front of the family. Go ahead, lay it all out. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters. <laughs> really? These women are my daughters? After the way that you've treated them, after the way you've acted and behaved? The children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, all you see is mine, yet what can I do today? Come now. Laban is kind of recognizing that he's not been such a nice guy. Uh, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between the two of us. In some ways, he's trying to save face. And what's fascinating after the twist and the turns and the drama of this very complicated person in Jacob's life, he agrees. And he sits down, raises up a stone and a heap of stones, and he says, okay, let's make a pact. Let's make an agreement. Let's come to the table. And if you read the end, which we didn't get to, but if you read the end carefully, the agreement that they make has two stone markers. It has two meals. There are two place names. God's name is invoked twice. And there are two separate names of God. God of Abraham and God of Nahor and the God of the fear of Isaac. So you go through all of these twists and these turns, these dramas, the the horrible kind of dualistic character of Laban. Jacob says, what have I done anything wrong? And they come together and say, okay, let's make a deal. And we're going to set up boundaries. So much so, not just one stone marker, but two. To indicate you're bringing something to the table and I'm bringing something to the table. Even though this history between us over... 14 years plus another six years, over 20 years of complicated history. You're going to bring something to the table. I'm going to bring something to the table. And both of them will be represented here in this agreement. Here will be the boundaries. Never shall I pass over this boundary to do you harm. And never will you pass over this boundary to do me harm. Let's just make an agreement. And I love this story for all and by the way go back and read it again you'll you'll start to see other twists and turns other dramatic little insertions that the the writer of this text wants you to see about the pain and the suffering and the hurt and the character and the duality of Laban and of Jacob because we know if you've been with us for a little while hearing the Genesis series you know that Jacob himself is also a very complicated character so what I'd like to suggest to you 
in this story, as we've gone through this very quickly, this story is illuminating for us that life is full of dualities. Life is full of all sorts of dualities. And we see this here illustrated in the Laban and Jacob story. Now, by dualities, I want to make sure that we, I say, I'm not talking about hypocrisy. I'm not talking about one person doing something and then all of a sudden turning around doing something else. What I'm talking about is witnessing that in life, whatever it is that we brought to the table, whatever character Laban has brought to the table, whatever characteristics Jacob has brought to the table, there are both benefits and detriments, blessings and curses. There's both wonderful things that you bring into this world, and there's also terrible things that you bring into this world. In this story, for both Jacob and Laban, and then also with Rachel and Leah, we see that there are two sides to this story. Up until this point, we see that this story is really just about Jacob and Laban. But here in chapter 31, we see this story is actually also about Laban and Rachel and Leah. And we see their victimization as well. Laban being the great father who has his wealth, who has his family, is also much of a trickster, just as much as Jacob is. Life is full of all sorts of dualities. Through this story, we see more and more of the shadow side of this guy named Laban, who, by the way, his name means white, who's supposed to be pure in motive and pure in heart. And he's actually a very dark person. In this story, we see more and more the sorrow of Rachel and Leah, which can sometimes get lost in our Bible reading because we're, we're looking at the main characters of the story. But here, jumping off of the page is the hurt and the pain that these that this interchange between Laban and Jacob has had to these women. And then we see that Jacob's cunning in the previous part of the story that has amassed all of this wealth, all of the goats, all of that, it has now been both an asset and it's been a liability. Because before it's gotten him into trouble and now it has saved the family that he has also created. Life is full of all sorts of complicated dualities. Let me share with you a couple other places that I see this in the Bible. This is really fascinating to me. This is the word Sheol in Hebrew. It means to ask for. Sheol. In fact, that's where the name Saul comes from. Sheol means to ask for. We want a king, the Israelites say. We want a king. We want a king. And God gives them a king named. You asked for it. But the word Sheol, if you listen carefully, many of you are starting to make the connections, also means the grave, the underworld. In other words, Sheol, this word can mean an asking, but it also means Sheol is you get what you've asked for. There's a duality in this word. There's another duality in the word Kadosh. Kadosh is the Hebrew word for holy, but sometimes it's also used as the word prostitute. This word Baruch or Barach means to bless, to worship, to bow to your knee. This is what a Barak is. But in the book of Job, the same word is used to curse. This same word, these words are both things at the same time, depending on the context, depending upon how that word is used. This word Keshet, many of you, if you go back to the teachings that we've had before in Genesis, this word means bow. It's a munitions term. It's a weapon. 
But in the Noah story, it's the rainbow. It's the sign of the covenant and the promise. There's two things stretching in these words. And my favorite, this word zakhar, means male. But it also means to remember, which makes no sense to me why that is. And then this word lechem, which means bread, the same root is the same root that is also used for the word war. In other words, food, sustenance, the very thing that gives us life, just one twist and one turn could also lead to the most hellish expression on earth, perhaps. The ancient rabbis talk about, and even modern Judaism talks about, in our own hearts there's a duality. There's an inclination to do good and there's an inclination to do bad. And in Deuteronomy, we're supposed to love God with all of our heart. How do you love God with all of your heart if part of your heart wants to do evil? Some commentators talk about, well, the duality of your heart. Sometimes your heart is really, really pure and wants to do good things. But sometimes your heart is really impure. Maybe it just wants to make money. So how do you love God with all of your heart? Well, you have to learn how to receive. You have to learn how to lean into even that side of your heart. This is also a duality. Life is full of all of these complicated double things, these dualities. If you've ever taken a Myers-Briggs temperament or personality test, you know that every single one of these also has its positives and it has its negatives. Myself, if I can be transparent, like a 9.9 on an introvert scale, which means I really love and enjoy deep, passionate, engaged, intellectual conversation, but I'm really kind of socially awkward. And the very thing that makes me who I am is also the very thing that makes me not so great at other things. Every single personality trait is also a duality. It has wonderfully beneficial things that it brings into this world. And then it has other things in which you're going to have to be challenged with. I'll give you another example of that. Um, I work with some students, and there's one student that comes to mind who has an extremely sharp moral compass. And so ethical, so principled, extremely detailed and committed to what those principles are. So that express, that very thing within her is an expression of integrity. But that very same thing, that very strength of a moral compass also makes her a little stubborn. Which means that she rebels against everything that doesn't have a moral compass, even if it's just the thing that you have to do. The exact same thing that you have that gives you one benefit in one area is the very same thing that will give you a detriment in another. Life is full of dualities. Any of you in a relationship, you already know this. When you meet that partner in the other across the crowded room and you meet and you're so, oh, you're so excited because this person is so fun and spontaneous and so adventurous. And then you get together and you realize this is a little risky. Wait a second. Have we made plans yet? And they tend to be a little frivolous. So the very thing that you've, you've been attracted to turns out also to be this thing that you get scared of. You know, people that are very direct. I like that. Very efficient. Get the job done. But yet that very same characteristic can also be a little pushy, maybe a little bit insensitive. But they get the job done. Life is full of dualities. You know, people that are very detail-oriented, guess what? They pay attention. And they notice everything. But guess what? They pay attention and they notice everything. (laughs) 
Life is full of these dualities. There are always these two sides. And for those of you who have had to deal with or counsel or manage people that have anger issues or have expressed anger, there's one side of the anger, which is what you see. It's the anger. It's the temperament. But once you recognize that there are two sides to every story, this person is not an angry person. And I've learned this through uh, many years of counseling. There's another side to the story. There's probably hurt, insecurity, frustration, and shame. And if you only deal with the anger that you see in front of you, you may be missing on the other side of the story. Our politics, dare I even bring it up, are also a wonderful expression of the dualities of our existence. There are reasons on one side of the aisle, but there are also reasons on the other side of that same aisle, which is what makes our politics in our country hopefully so wonderful where we can have those conversations. Here's another area where there's dualities. The shirts, the clothes, the shoes that we wear, all of this wonderful thing that we have. Guess what? Inexpensive, great deal. Shopping at Walmart. Woohoo! Saving some money. But because life is a duality and because life has other sides of the story, this very same thing that can bring us tremendous blessings, that can bring us a tremendous sense of economy and thriftiness, can also mean that maybe the other side of the story isn't so great. And the reason why this is important is because for those of us who study these stories like the Jacob and Laban story and like the rest of the scriptures, we start to recognize that everything, everything in our life, is a duality that brings both of these things together. The food that we eat, this was a radical change and shift for me. Healthy, organic, yummy, farm to table. This is really good stuff. But this week, actually two weeks ago, I watched a program uh, from PBS, from Frontline, called Rape in the Fields. And you start to realize this very same food, this food that I'm eating right now has a story about my health, my change. And it's a wonderful change. I'm trying to be healthier. I'm trying to eat better. I'm trying to take care of myself and my family. But there's also another side of that story. And guess what? I should probably pay attention to that side of the story as well. In other words, there are always, always two sides of every story. And we see that with Laban. We see that with Rachel and Leah. And we see that with Jacob. One of my favorite quotes is from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who said, Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts. This line shifts inside of us. It oscillates with the years. Fundamentally, I think the reason why life is a duality is because all of us are also dualities. And the line that separates good and evil is running right between all of us. And we are having to wrestle and struggle and recognize the dualities that exist within us. Okay, so let me ask you a couple questions after we've gone through all of that. What is your gift? What is the thing that you bring to the table that is a tremendous blessing in this world? What is your talent? What is your skill? What is your temperament? And you know what? What is your conflict? What are the things that you're bringing to the table? 
What are the things that you're having to wrestle with? What are the things that are phenomenally blessing you and your life, providing you safety, security? What are the things that are giving you the fullness of the experience that you want to have in this world? Well, guess what? Embrace the greatness and the beauty of that gift. Embrace the beauty and the greatness of that talent. Embrace the benefits of your temperament and all of those things. But also recognize that that very thing can have a shadow side in a different context in a different place. In other words, what is your story? What is the story that we live out of? What is the story that we're telling? Is the story that we're telling that our gifts and our talents are only this blessing and this gift? Or is the story that we're telling also that there can be times and moments where the very thing that we bring to the table that's a benefit may be hurtful or complicated in another place? Flip that as well. What are the thi- what's the thing that you hate so much about yourself? What's the thing that's so frustrating about your personality? What's the thing that you are so conflicted about and wish could change? Well, there's probably something in there that also has a benefit. There's something good about that. There's something of benefit about that that also lives within you. So my question is for you. What drama do you find yourself in right now? What's the conflict that you're living in? What's the thing that you can't resolve? What's the thing that is driving you nuts? And then the follow-up question is, what side of the story are you telling? What side of the story are you believing? What side of the story are you trusting? What side of the story are you living? Because I think, and I would commend to all of us, that the Jacob and Laban story illuminates for us that if we're only living one side of the story, we may be missing out on the other side of the story. Here's why. If we do that, oftentimes our impulse is we feel like positives, negatives, blessings, curses. We feel like we have to choose between one of those two things. And oftentimes when we only live by one side of the story, whether it's the benefit that gives to us, we ignore the other side of the story of where it's hurtful and painful for other people, like our clothing, like our food, like in the choices that we make. We either ignore it, or sometimes we dismiss it and we use it to argue against one another. Well, your side of the story sucks because my side of the story is better. This is oftentimes the conflict. And what I would suggest to you is just like the scriptures have now led us into illuminating for us both sides of these stories, so we also can embrace both sides. This is why, honestly, I love the scriptures, and I think the Bible is truly, truly honest. This passage here where it's illuminating, and you've read multiple of these stories, illuminates the shadow side or the dark side or the hard side, the Bible tells us the whole story. You guys know the story of Noah and creating the ark and all these wonderful animals, and he saves the entire planet. That's one side of the story. The other side of the story is he plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and has all sorts of nefarious actions with his sons afterwards. We don't put that on a flannel graph, but that's the other side of the story. Even the story of Noah is a duality. So the reason why I'm suggesting that we embrace both sides of the story and recognize that whatever conflict you're in, whatever benefit you bring to the table, whatever challenge you think that you're in, If you're only telling one side of the story, I have a feeling you may be missing out on a way of bringing both of the stories together to bring them to the table to find hope and redemption as you recognize and accept that there are two sides of every 
story. Because this is what I see, what happens with Laban and Jacob at the very end of the story. After all of that complication with Laban, after he is showing his cards to being not a very nice guy, especially to his daughters, Jacob says, okay, come to the table. Let's make a pact. Let's make a covenant. Let's break bread together. And so Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they had spent the night there. And what I would encourage you in my message today is this phrase. He invited his relatives to the meal. Whatever duality we face, whatever complicated story we live in, it is my encouragement that we take both sides of the story invite them to a meal and say, let's talk. Let's chat. Let's figure out how we can embrace both of these sides. Let's figure out how we can work. And let's figure out what the strengths and the weaknesses are of both sides of the story. And let's figure out how we can move together. Remember the pact. There was two of everything in that pact. Two of everything. Because I think what that's illustrating is this side of the story, the bad side of the story, this complicated side of the story needs to be brought to the table with all the great sides of the story, the positive sides, the benefits. Back to this slide. This student that I was working with who was in my office, so frustrated because she felt, she felt like she was a bad person because she was stubborn, she was rebellious, She was tenacious. She didn't want to submit to whatever status quo she was living in. She was living only one side of the story. And what I tried to encourage her is this. Yeah, you're a little Miss Stubborn right now. Yeah, you're being a little rebellious. But guess what? That only means... That what is deep down inside of your heart, that same thing that is causing you to be rebellious, is the same thing that will cause you to stick up for a moral principle in another area. Later that week, she came into my office and she told me about this unfortunate thing that was happening on campus. About how these guys were making fun of these other guys, of another kid. You know, it's, it's, it's high school, it's junior high, this stuff happens. And she started yelling at these other boys, standing up for these moral principles. And they started making fun of her. But because of this, because of what she has here in her heart, she was able to yell back at them and she wasn't bothered at all. Why? Because she's stubborn and she's a little tenacious. And I don't really care what you say to me. What you're doing is wrong right now. The exact same principle, the exact same quality, the exact same characteristic or temperament, in two different expressions. And I told her, bring both to the table. Stand up for what is morally principled. And if this side, the rebellion or the stubbornness, if that side is also part of the character, bring that to the table and figure out how can you leverage that? How can you use that? How can you leverage that in this world for the redemption of wherever you go? There's two sides of every story. Whatever you're in, my suggestion is consider. Consider the other side of the story. Consider what narrative you're living by. 
if the story is only a negative one, if the story is only these things that are detriments, embrace the other side of the story. Because there's something wonderfully principled there. There's something wonderfully positive. There's something wonderfully beneficial that you're bringing to the table. On the other hand, if you think that you are the greatest gift since sliced bread to the world, consider the other side of the story. There are always two sides of every story. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time that we've had together. I pray that this teaching and my words have been um, at least helpful in some way to embrace a redemptive path and a greater story. Lord, help us to see first and foremost that everything that we bring and everything that happens in every dramatic event, every complicated person in our lives has two sides. Help us to see and understand those two sides. And Lord, as we do, help us to embrace both sides, to bring both to the table, to make a covenant and a pact with both, and to figure out how we can work in this world to great redemption and great hope and great love with both. Meet us, love us, encourage us, give us wisdom and insight to that end. I pray in your name. Amen. Um, Would you please stand and I'd like to recite a benediction over us and then we'll dismiss. May the God of our Father be our strength, our love, our source of hope and peace in both sides of every story we live and every story we tell. Amen.